All right, good morning, everybody. How's everyone? Go ahead and come on in, yeah. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, so my name's Adam Pelser. For those of you who are new to the class, uh, this is week four in a five-week uh, Sunday school class series on philosophy and Christian thought. Um, first couple of weeks, I had uh, my, my friend and colleague, uh, Lindsay Kirchhoff, here with me, and she'll be back again next week. Um, so, uh, so look forward to that. And um, today, before we get started, I'd like to just open us up with a word of prayer and commit this time to the Lord, commit our hearts and our minds to the Lord, um, and get prepared to, to think and to think well uh, and to think uh, Christianly about some tough issues. So let's pray together, if you would. Dear God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for the freedom to get to worship you without fear for our lives, without fear of persecution the way that some around the world do. Thank you for the opportunity to use our minds. We thank you for our minds. We thank you that you've given us the ability to think, uh, to think well and to think clearly, and we ask that you would help us to do that this morning. Uh, we ask that you would help uh, draw us near to you, help, um, help us develop a kind of wisdom uh, that we can reflect in the world, uh, your, your light and your wisdom. Pray that you bless this time now. We thank you for this beautiful fall day, uh, for this beautiful fall weekend, uh, and all of the beauty in your creation that points us to you um, and your majesty and your creativity and your intelligence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as I've done uh, on other weeks, um, those of you who have been here know that I teach at the United States Air Force Academy, and, oh, I'm having a hard time getting the uh, note to come up. That is not the entire disclaimer. So the entire disclaimer is supposed to say the views expressed in this presentation uh, are my own and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Air Force, the United States Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Um, that's important for me to say because uh, we need to protect uh, religious freedom and make sure that, uh, that you know that in my capacity here, I'm speaking to you as a new life downtowner, uh, as a Sunday school teacher, and not as a representative of the, of the government. Um, I don't know what happened to the rest of it, so sorry about that. All right, today we are going to be talking about happiness. Oh, and I didn't plug in my audio. Oh, no. And I have audio. So a little audio to get us thinking about happiness. What? Oh, sorry, I thought you were talking to me. So I thought, I told my wife that I'd start off today like Ellen. Ellen starts her show, Ellen DeGeneres, right? And I'd clap, walk up the aisle. All right. So today we're talking about happiness and the good life. Happiness and the good life. What is happiness? So there are uh, 
two major views of happiness that I want to discuss this morning, and then um, we're going to do things a little bit differently than we've done today. I'm just going to sort of walk through uh, some thoughts about happiness, give you some of the philosophical background for some of these ideas, uh, these popular ideas of happiness, and then we'll have a little bit more discussion time at the end than uh, what we've been doing in the past. I know we're sort of mixing it up every week. We've done something a little bit different. Um, So this morning, uh, feel free to interrupt me at any point. So uh, raise your hand, ask a question, pose an objection. Um, By all means, uh, interrupt me. We've got uh, plenty of time here, and uh, so I, I want this to be this, this to be as useful to you as, as, as possible. So the first view that we want to look at today is the subjective view of happiness, and that's the idea that happiness is a positive feeling or mood. And according to this view, and you know, so the idea is, look, happiness is just sort of whatever, whatever you think is going to make you feel good, right? It's a sort of positive feeling. Um, the conditions for happiness are determined by each individual for herself, um, quote a line from another popular song, if it makes you happy, then it can't be that bad, right? Anybody know that song? Anybody recognize that, that lyric? Shell Crow? Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right, good. So um, I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing that for you. So the idea is that, look, happiness is just sort of whatever you think it is, right? It's just it's up to you to decide what makes you happy, and whatever makes you happy... Um, the, 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 the corollary of this view is that whatever makes you happy, well, it's, that's, that's good, right? It's whatever makes you happy is good, and whatever makes you unhappy, oh, that's bad. We like happiness, right? Um, we all want to be happy. Um, but that's in stark opposition to another view, an ancient philosophical view of happiness uh, that goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, so Plato, Aristotle, uh, Socrates, we've talked about these ancient Greek philosophers in here a little bit. Um, they had a very different understanding of happiness. They thought it wasn't just determined by what you want, what you just desire, um, fulfilling whatever desires you happen to have. They actually had this crazy thought, this very radical thought, that some desires were worse for you than others. Why would they think that? Right? Why would they think that some desires might be worse for you than others? Does that seem right, that some desires are worse for you than others? Yeah. Look, some things are just bad for us, right? We all went out to the snack table out there, right? And there's some desires that are good for you when you're at the snack table and some that are not so good for you at the snack table, right? Um, Desires to eat donuts all day long, right, is not as good as a desire to eat salad all day long. Uh, Unfortunately, most of us, myself included, uh, tend to desire the donuts more than the salads. And so we have to work on that, right? And so that's what these ancient Greek philosophers thought. They thought, look, there are some things that are just bad for you. There are some things that are bad to desire. And so satisfying those desires, while it may give you a sort of a momentary satisfaction, while you may feel sort of good in the moment, um, it's bad for you. And so they thought happiness was something deeper than this um, superficial sort of feeling or just the satisfaction of whatever desires we happen to be having at the moment. They thought happiness was human flourishing, or um, blessedness is another way to think about it. Uh, the Greek word for this is eudaimonia. So the Greeks thought, the Greek philosophers anyway, uh, thought, uh, thought that... Uh, Eudaimonia was the goal. That's what we're all after. We're all after this idea of sort of human flourishing where happiness is found in living an objectively good life. They thought that virtue was central to 
human flourishing. They thought that if you want to live a really good life, you'd better be a good person. You'd better be a virtuous person. And so some of the great texts of ancient philosophy, uh, Plato's Republic, um, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, uh, they're all on this theme. Uh, they're all on this theme of how do we fit doing the right thing and living a good life and being a virtuous person in with this idea of happiness, right? What's the connection? How is it that they're connected? Um, and one, one group even went so far, uh, the, the Stoic philosophers even went so far as to say that the only thing that you need for happiness is virtue. That's what they thought. They thought, if you are a virtuous person, the only, then you are happy. You are living a good life and you are flourishing. You've achieved eudaimonia. Now, um, can anybody think of an obvious sort of rejoinder to that? Anybody think of an obvious objection? Aristotle wasn't so sure that that was true. Why, why do you think that? Why do you think you would have thought you need more than just to be a virtuous person? Yeah, right. What if you're starving, right? That would be really bad. That would be really bad. Hard to, be, hard to say that you're living a really flourishing, full human life while starving, right? Even if you are virtuous. Yeah. So Aristotle said, no, there's some things. There's some what, what, he, what he and the Stoics both refer to as sort of external goods. And there are some things that are outside of our control. Virtue might be within our control, but there's lots of other things that are outside of our control, and at least some of those things are necessary to be flourishing, to, to, have, to achieve eudaimonia. Things like food, shelter, right? maybe even a friend or two. Right? Aristotle was pretty big on friendship. He thought, yeah, it's hard to, hard to really live an ideally virtuous and happy life without a couple of good friends around um, to share that life with. So the Stoics, though, they thought, no, no, it's all about virtue, you know, and, they, and, and uh, um, there's even this sort of famous idea that you could be happy even while on the rack, meaning the torture rack, right? I mean, you could be being tortured and still be perfectly happy because, after all, you're a virtuous person. So for the Stoics, right, you've probably, some of you have probably heard this phrase, uh, you know, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it, Yeah. So for Aristotle, that's true of happiness, right? For Aristotle, happiness is about 10% uh, what happens to you in life and about 90% how you respond to it virtuously, right? If you, if you can respond virtuously to some trials and tribulations in life, well, then you can still be a happy person. We're not going to call you a wretched or miserable person. We're not going to say, oh, that's not a life worth living because there was some trial there, there was some difficulty there. Um, uh, but he thought... But if life is nothing but trial and difficulty, I mean, if you, then, then it's really hard to see why we should think that that um, is going to count as a happy life. Um, for the Stoics, you know, they would have said something more like, you know, life is 0% what happens to you and 100% how you respond to the things that happens to you, right? Or happiness is at least, right? That's, that's all uh, happiness amounts to is your own uh, control over your virtue, um, and so if you want to be a happy person, you just look inward and you try to cultivate your character appropriately so that you can achieve happiness, you can achieve the good life, you can achieve eudaimonia. Okay, so there's two different views, right? And I think um, both of these views were popular uh, in the ancient world. 
uh, there were lots and lots of people, right, who disagreed with these philosophers, right? That's, the philosophers, this was not like the popular view, just because Plato and Aristotle were saying it at the time. Um, it's not like all the ancient Greeks thought this way. In fact, most uh, uh, people in the ancient Greek culture wanted to live a life of just pure amusement and entertainment and satisfaction of um, uh, their, their basest desires, right? And I think um, we can see elements of that in our own culture today, right? This idea that happiness is just pursuing whatever you feel like at the time, right? Whatever's going to make you happy, you go out and you get that thing um, and you satisfy your desires. Now, of course, we want to put limits on that. Maybe you shouldn't hurt people in the process. Um, but we think... If it's going to make you happy, then it can't be that bad, right? So what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? I want, um, if I could, get those of you who've got Bibles with you today, if I could get volunteers to, uh, to look up and read these, um, these passages. So can I have a volunteer for the first one, Psalm 37? Somebody just raise your hand and volunteer. Okay, great. Uh, how about a volunteer for John 10? Perfect. Um, a volunteer for the John 16 passage. Perfect. That's great. Uh, Galatians 5. Will you read Galatians 5 for us? Okay. And then 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. All right. Thank you very much. All right. So I've got volunteers for all my passages here. Um, let's... Uh, <laughs> did I not pick you? I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. Uh, Let's start with the passage from... <laughs> Sorry, you're finishing a bite. Maybe we should start with John 10. <laughs> uh, so this is Psalm 37, verses 3 through 4. So delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires and the secret petitions of your heart. This is a picture, a biblical picture, of at least a part of what happiness looks like. Right? Um, yes? Yes, it did. It did say do good. It said do good. Uh, is, you know, so the question is, is virtue morally correct, um, but, but does it actually imply doing good for others? Um, so I think uh, most f- philosophical writers, yeah, most philosophical writers who write on virtue would want to say, yeah, some of the virtues include doing good for others. So there's virtues of, say, benevolence or uh, generosity. Um, even courage, you might think, uh, is, a, is a way of doing good for others, right? It's a way of sort of standing up to dangerous situations for the sake of some good thing um, to be accomplished. Uh, so, so, um, so, yes, uh, there is a sense in which um, uh, most philosophers who want to talk about virtue are not going to think of virtue purely in terms of um, sort of... <sighs> sort of cultivating your own character in a way that doesn't uh, impact others. 
um, they're going to definitely think about virtue in terms of doing good, but their, their list is going to be different than, say, what you might expect from a, from a Christian list of virtues, right? So, for example, with Aristotle, humility was not big on his list. You know, he would not have been big on humility. He was big on independence and being great, and he's got this idea of the, uh, the megalopsukos, the great-souled man. Uh, uh, that's what he thought was sort of the ideal for humanity, to be this sort of great person who's got lots of money and, you know, spends it to endow libraries and, you know, build cities and you've got great uh, knowledge of the law. And he says, he even goes so far as to say that the really truly virtuous person um, can't ever be offended. Why? Well, because people who are as good as that virtuous person won't ever do anything offensive to him. Um, And people who are not as good, who are less virtuous, who are more vicious than him, well, he shouldn't ever care what they think anyway, right? I mean, he, he shouldn't be affected by how they treat him. He should be sort of condescending toward those kinds of people. That was his picture of the virtuous person. Um, and, uh, and so that looks a very different than what we might think of in, you know, uh, the, from a Christian perspective, what makes for an ideally virtuous person. So even though we might agree that, say, generosity belongs on the list of the virtues, um, he would have a very different idea of why and what that looks like, right? Um, we... We love because God first loved us, right? <laughs> Not because we're so great <laughs> and everybody else needs us so much. Right? Yeah, right. Good. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, John 10. Were you my John 10 reader? Yeah, will you read, uh, will you read the John 10 passage? It's verses 7 through 11. Good. So what does this passage tell us about the Christian view of happiness? What does it say that's relevant to this notion of happiness? It's not all on us. Yeah. We can't achieve it on our own. That's, yeah, that's really good. We need, we need the good shepherd, right? Yeah. What else? It says, it says we need to be saved, right? I mean... He will save us. That implies that we need salvation from something. Right? Yes. Yeah, we do have to be careful. Yeah, we have to be careful who we trust. Right? Um, he's sort of operating on the assumption that that we are going to trust somebody to to save us from the mess we've gotten ourselves into. Right? Um, we are going to trust somebody to save us from our psychological difficulties, right? We're going to trust somebody to save us from the problem of sin and the problem of death and better be trusting the right one. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, Jesus is the right one to trust. Yeah. Yes? Oh, very good. Yes. <laughs> the suggestion is that uh, somebody besides me is determining what's, what happiness is for me, right? Uh, he says that he's come, that we might have life, and that we might have it abundantly. Right? Abundantly. That's the kind of life that Jesus wants to give us. So there is a sense in which right, Jesus wants us to be happy. Right? 
in a, in a deep, robust sense, right? Something a little bit closer to this ancient Greek notion of eudaimonia, right, than the subjective view. He wants us to be happy. But that doesn't mean he wants us to do anything we think is going to make us happy, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah, he didn't say of come that they can have a happy life. Of come that they can have an abundant life, right? We might think of that as a sort of uh, synonym for flourishing here, right? Of come that they might have a flourishing life, that they'd have a blessed life, right? The, the really, truly good kind of life. Um, good. Okay, uh, let's see. Where are we? So John 16. Who's my John 16 reader? All right, yes. All right, so ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You may be sorrowful now, but your sorrow is going to turn to joy and rejoicing. What does this tell us about the Christian view of happiness? Yeah. It doesn't involve an absence of suffering. That's good, yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good point. Some sorrow sometime is consistent with maybe living the kind of abundant life Jesus has called us to. Yes. Well, I like how it mentions that while you're suffering, the world will be rejoicing. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's sort of like a temptation. Like, wow, those people over there sure like, like they're enjoying their lives while I'm over here giving birth. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> giving birth. Very good. Very good. Yeah, while we're suffering, the world is rejoicing. And that is, you're right, that is a temptation. We look and we say, oh, look how much fun they're having, right? I'd rather be doing that. That looks like more fun, right? That's going to make me happy. Yeah, very good. Yeah. What does, it, what does it say about the desires of our heart? Again, this is hearkening back to that Psalm 37 passage. Yeah. That the source is from God. So, but what he wants is for not to deny us the desires of our hearts, right? But to transform them, right? Transform the desires of our hearts so that we desire what really is truly good for us. And then he wants to give us that. He wants to give us all of that, right? That doesn't mean whatever the desires of your heart happen to be, yeah, I'm going to give you that stuff. No, as a good father, right? As, as a father to my children, that would be, be a terrible way to raise them, right? If I just said, well, whatever you want any, all of the time, just ask me and I'll just give it to you, right? We don't call those children happy. We call them spoiled, right? We call them spoiled rotten, right? We think they, they are rotten in their, in their soul because their parents have done nothing to help tra- shape, transform, right? Give them the desires that they ought to have. Help them to develop the desires that are good for them, right? But when my kids, when they develop a desire that really is truly good for them and then they, and they ask me, of course I want to do it for them, right? Of course I want them to have the best of what life has to offer them, right? And I'm just a sinful, <laughs> messed up, broken human being, right? 
how much more does God, our Heavenly Father, who's perfect, uh, want to give us good gifts and to give us the desires of our hearts when those desires are really, truly good for us? Yeah. It's hard for me to think about happiness in the context of desire. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, okay. Good. 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 This is a great suggestion. So the idea is that happiness isn't just about desire fulfillment, that, that it's actually maybe better to think of of happiness in terms of delight, right? Um, a kind of, uh, a kind of um, deep joy or something like that, right? Uh, in, response to, in response to God, maybe, in response to salvation, uh, in response to our relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Um, that, that happiness isn't just about, oh, I get what I want, right? But it's about taking delight in uh, the good things in the world, right? What's really, truly good, uh, what's true, and what's beautiful, right? Um, on my way in this morning, I was delighting in the, the beautiful fall colors outside and the beautiful weather, right? Uh, it's, just a, it's just a beautiful, uh, beautiful day, right? And that's, it's not like I woke up this morning and I said, you know what I'd really want? I'd really like to see some colorful leaves. <laughs> ah, there they are, right? I saw my colorful leaves, right? Now my desire is satisfied, right? No, it was just, just a delighting in the beauty of it. Yeah, and so I think that's good. That's a really nice point, that that's, that that's got to be an essential element here to, um, to happiness. Okay, good. Uh, let's, moving along, we've got uh, Galatians 5, 22 through 24. All right, what does this tell us about happiness? This sort of affirming some of the things that we've already said. Just any passions and desires are okay? <laughs> no, we've, we, those who belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires, right? There are certain passions and desires that we all find ourselves with that are not good for us, right? And part of what it is to follow Christ is to crucify those, right? To lay those down, to, to be transformed so that we no longer desire those things, right? Those things of the flesh uh, that are bad for us. And again, this is not to suggest, uh, this is not to suggest that, that the flesh itself is bad in the sense that the physical world is bad, right? When, when Paul says the flesh here, what he's talking about is something like our sinful nature, right? He's not saying... All physicality is bad, right? There, there, there were ancient philosophical views that actually held that, right? So Gnosticism uh, is, a, is an ancient view that held that, that anything physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And so what we really need to do is get rid of this body of ours, right? Or sort of whip it into shape, right? So that we can be good and spiritual uh, beings. Um, this actually draws a little bit on, on Plato's own philosophy. Plato had a, a view of the body that was kind of like this. He, he wasn't real big on the physical world. He thought this was just sort of a shadow of ultimate reality and that the really best thing for you is to sort of get as far away from your physical 
uh, uh, desires as you could, right? And Paul's not saying that. He's not saying get rid of all physical desires uh, for food, drink, sex, etc. He's saying, he's saying get rid of the bad ones, right? He's saying transform them so that they, you desire what is truly good for you, right? As a body-soul creation, as a body-soul uh, person made in the image of God, right? Get rid of these desires of the sinful, the sinful flesh. Okay, good. And then lastly, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Who had that for me? Yes. So what does this tell us about the Christian notion of happiness? Well, it's, yeah. it's more than just the present age. It's the duration to come uh, that we look forward to the, whatever afflictions we have now because they're momentary and light yeah. even if we suffer for a lifetime. Yeah. Compared to the eternal weight of glory there's no, no comparison. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so we look forward to an eternal weight of glory. And, and, and in light of that eternal glory that we look forward to, that eternal happiness that we look forward to, momentary afflictions in this life pale in comparison, right? And so we have a view, we have, I, th- I think I heard somebody say hope over here. Um, the, the, the Christian view of happiness is one that's grounded in the hope in the eternal life, right? Eternal life with God, not just life here on earth. We, this is not all there is for us, right? This is not our home, we're just passing through. And so if there are momentary troubles and tribulations in this life, we can still have a kind of deep hope and happiness knowing that we've got an eternal weight of glory uh, waiting for those who are in Christ. Good. Yeah, good. Excellent. Yeah, this idea of scope, right? Our, our troubles in this life that we might think make for unhappiness, we need to put them in a bigger perspective. And part of what um, part of what being a Christian is and part of what developing a Christian hope is, I think this is actually going to um, be the, uh, the topic of, of Pastor Evan's sermon this morning, the idea of uh, developing a Christian hope where we see the things in this world in an eternal perspective, where we actually develop that eternal perspective, where we can mature to the point where we're not like the child who throws a fit over the broken toy, right? But we're, we're more like the adult who sees the broken toy and thinks, okay, yeah, that's unfortunate. But um, in the big scheme of things, how important is it? Well, it's not that important, right? And, and, and so part of spiritual transformation, part of spiritual growth is developing this eternal perspective so that when bad things do happen in this life, when trials do come in this life, when we do experience hardships in this life, we can see them with this overarching eternal perspective. We can see them in light of the eternal glory, the eternal weight of glory uh, that we look forward to in Christ.
Okay, so uh, uh, just as a, as a brief a summary statement on here, uh, I've got this claim that the biblical view is that happiness is abundant life in Christ and it's fulfillment of our deepest spiritual needs and desires, right? Our deepest spiritual needs and desires, not just whatever passions and desires we happen to find ourselves with, um, but those that are the deepest spiritual needs and desires. And, and chief among those is to be reunited with our Creator, be reunited with God. The God whom we have sinned against and whom we need salvation to uh, find. So what, what we can see from this discussion so far is, I've got, I've got this long quote up here um, from C.S. Lewis, which I'll read through uh, for you. But what we can see here is that the nature of happiness is not worldview neutral. That what you think happiness is depends on your sort of, uh, your, your underlying, or you might think overarching, right, uh, to mix my metaphors here, um, a worldview, right? Uh, your basic assumptions about the way that the world is and what ultimate reality is. And so here's uh, a way that C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, A Christian and a non-Christian may both wish to do good to their fellow men. The one believes that men are going to live forever, that they were created by God and so built that they can find their true and lasting happiness only by being united to God, that they have gone badly off the rails, and that obedient faith in Christ is the only way back. The other believes that men are the accidental result of the blind workings of matter, that they started as mere animals and have more or less steadily improved, that they are going to live for about 70 years, that their happiness is fully attainable by good social services and political organizations, and that everything else, for example, vivisection, birth control, the judicial system, education, is to be judged good or bad simply insofar as it helps or hinders that kind of happiness. So you see, the point here is that what, what you think about human beings, what you think about our fundamental nature, um, whether we're made in the image of God and made for an eternal life, uh, or whether we are um, purely uh, uh, you know, materialistic, physical beings who have no eternal life beyond this, um, that is going to uh, change dramatically what you think is going to make for human happiness. Okay. So now the question is... Um, do we have a right to be happy? And I'm sorry, all these uh, notes are coming up all at once, so try to just, you know, not pay too much attention to what's down here, and we'll get to that. I, uh, I, didn't, <laughs> I ran out of time. I, I, we've, we've had a rough week at my house. I had a lot of illness, and, uh, and yesterday was my turn. I got, I got pretty sick yesterday, so I did not have time to, uh, uh, to put together the slides the way I usually do. So... Um, this, this is the question that we want to get to, is this idea of, of do we have a right to be happy? Is there a right to happiness? We've already talked some about what that is. Um, I think uh, already what we've seen, just by looking at the nature of happiness, I think it's, it, it's, it should start to become pretty obvious we don't have a right to happiness, but I think a lot of people think that we do. I think a lot of people think that we do have a right to be happy. And so I want to uh, look at that idea with you this morning and then look at some of the ramifications of that view and how a Christian might uh, respond to that idea. So um, the first thing that we might say about rights is that um, we need to distinguish legal rights from moral rights. So a legal right is something like a freedom guaranteed by a law of society. That's what a right is. So um, if I have a right to... Um, if I have a right to uh, not be harmed violently, right, then, and that's a legal right, then there's a law that says anybody who harms me violently is going to be punished, right, and um, they're not allowed to do that, right. Uh, 
so if you know if you punch me in the face, well then uh, you violated you violated my right. Um, but that's different than a moral right. So a moral right is a freedom guaranteed by what we might call the natural law, right? Um, so philosophers like Thomas Aquinas and uh, John Locke uh, thought that there was a natural law that was sort of that underlied the human laws that we put in place. So why do we have um, laws on the books in our country that say, you know, murder is wrong, and if you murder, you're going to be punished? Well, because there's a natural law. There's a natural law that we can sort of perceive by reason. We can figure it out, right, um, just by sort of thinking about it, looking around at the world that says, yeah, murder's wrong. It's really bad, right? And so this gets back to what we were talking about last week, about moral and spiritual knowledge. Um, the idea being that there's a, there's a natural law that we can know, um, that we don't necessarily even have to know all of the parts of it, right? I mean, we don't have to know where it comes from even to know that it exists, right? To know that murder is wrong, we don't necessarily need to be able to answer the question why it's wrong. We think it's wrong, Christians think it's wrong because it's a, a violation of the image of God in human beings, that human beings have a special moral status and that to, to kill an innocent human being is to, is to violate that image of God, right? It's to disrespect uh, that image of God in them. Um, and, and we think that that exists, right? That exists and it sort of underlies the laws of our society. Now, the laws of our society are good insofar as they actually do map on to the natural law that exists, right? That's what Aquinas would say and that's what John Locke would say. Um, and so we might think that people can have moral rights, that they have a right to do something. And I think when people talk about a right to happiness, I think that's, that's what they're referring to. They're not trying to say there's some like legal right to happiness, although we'll talk about whether there in fact is. Um, they're, what they're trying to say is there's this sort of sense that like, look, if it's going to make them happy, they should have a right to it. No, you know, nobody should get in their way, right? Um, we should allow them uh, to do it. But of course, um, rights entail obligations. So as I use the example of, you know, the right to my personal safety, you know, a uh, right to a freedom from violent attack, right? If I have that right, then you all have an obligation. You have a, all have an obligation not to punch me in the face, right? That's your, that's your obligation. You have an obligation not to harm me physically if I have a right not to be harmed physically, right? And so rights and obligations go hand in hand. I think this is important because I think um, we live in a culture that loves to talk about rights, we love to talk about all the rights that people have. We say, oh, yes, everybody has a right to this and everybody has a right to that. And I think um, seldomly do we hear anybody say, okay, but who has an obligation to provide those things for everyone? Right? If there is a right, there really is a right, especially if it's a moral right, but uh, you know, if there's a legal right, uh, two, we should ask ourselves, well, who has an obligation then? What obligations are binding on other people, maybe on society as a whole, right? Um, and of course, if we have a right to be happy, then what does that entail? What does that entail if we have a right to be happy? That's right, an obligation on others to make us happy, right? And if we think that seems kind of unrealistic, right? Well, then maybe we'll punt to God here and we'll say, you know who's got an obligation to make me happy? Well, it's not everybody else because that seems unrealistic. It's God. God's got an obligation to make me happy. Right? 
And here I am, unhappy. So shame on God. Or shame on everybody else, right? Whoever you think it is that's ob obligated to make you happy. So, so that should give us some pause here. We should start to worry then about this idea of a right to be happy because we should think, well, who is it that has an obligation to make me happy? And yet, we have something written into a very important document in our country that suggests that we do have something like a right to happiness. Right? So in the Declaration of Independence, it mentions the pursuit of happiness along with life and liberty as one of our unalienable rights that comes to us from our Creator. So what should we make of this? Ah, good. Yes, I think that's exactly right. The pursuit is different than the achievement. Right? To pursue happiness is different than to become happy. And what the Declaration suggests is that we all have a right to pursue happiness. But does it suggest that we all have a right to pursue happiness by any means? No. No, it doesn't. It says we have the right to happiness, but we also have a right to life and liberty. So at the very minimum, we can't violate other people's rights to life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness, in the pursuit of our own happiness, right? Well, that rules out a whole lot of things I can't do to make myself happy then, right? There's lots and lots of things that I can't do, right? It's not saying that I have a right to be happy by any means necessary. So C.S. Lewis talks about this, and he says, look, what the founders were trying to do by putting this in the Declaration is they were not trying to um, say that we had some right to... to pursue happiness by any means, or even to achieve happiness, what they're saying is everybody's got an equal right to pursue happiness. Whatever right you have to pursue your own happiness, I've got the same one, right? Whatever right I've got, whatever rights I've got to go out and, and you know, live my life the way that I see fit, everybody else has got the same, right? This is something that I think in our day and age, most of us kind of take for granted, right? But it wasn't taken for granted back then, right? This was not taken for granted back then. There was a lot of political pressures, and of course they still had the institution of slavery around, and um, it's a good thing that we had something like this written into our declaration, right? Um, so that we could eventually abolish that, right? Abolish slavery and, and, and provide equal rights to everyone, to men and women and people of different races and ethnicities. So... We shouldn't take this uh, claim in the Declaration as an indication that we have a right to happiness. Um, rather, we have the right to pursue happiness, but even then, we don't have a right to pursue happiness by any means that we decide. Um, but now, here's, here's the real trouble, I think. I think that we live in a society where every felt need is viewed as a right. So if I feel like I need something, especially if I need it to be happy, I started thinking of it in terms of my rights. I have a right to it. I have a right to it. But then, um, guess what happens when one of my rights is violated? Do you know what we call that when a right is violated? Well, one of the things we call it is an injustice. Okay. You violate one of my rights, you've done something unjust. You've committed an injustice. You have violated one of my rights. But of course, if I have a right to be happy, and I find myself unhappy, what am I going to think? It's going to be my reaction to the world. 
I'm going to find the rascal who made me unhappy and punish him because I have a right to it. Because they've committed an injustice. They've done something wrong. And so, you know, we think we have a right to get our Starbucks order the right, prepared the right way the first time we order it. And if it doesn't come out the right way, what do we do? Well, we get angry at that barista, right? We think we have a right to drive on the freeways without being impeded by other people who are trying to get places. So what do we do when we get cut off in traffic? Or when we get stuck in traffic? We get angry, because anger is an appropriate response to injustice. Right? And if I have a right to be happy and other people are impeding that happiness, then I have a right to be angry. Right? And so we get angry. We get angry about all kinds of things that aren't real injustices. But we see them as injustices because we think if we feel like we need it or we have a deep desire for it, then somebody else owes it to us. And so we get angry. We live in an angry culture. We live in a wrathful culture. And this is one of the reasons why. We have this overblown sense of individual rights, and it leads to an overblown sense of injustice and overblown anger. Okay, so C.S. Lewis uh, says this about, about the right to happiness in, um, in an essay in, his, in this book called God on the Dock. He says, uh, at first this sounds to me as odd as a right to good luck. He's talking about the right to happiness. For I believe whatever one school of moralists may say, I think he's thinking here about the Stoics uh, that I mentioned earlier, that we depend for a very great deal of our happiness or misery on circumstances outside all human control. Remember the Stoics thought that wasn't true. And C.S. Lewis is saying, no, I think that is true. We depend uh, for a very great deal of our happiness or misery on circumstances outside all human control. A right to happiness doesn't, for me, make much more sense than a right to be six feet tall or to have a millionaire for your father or to get good weather whenever you want to have a picnic. So he's saying, look, this just doesn't make sense, this idea of a right to happiness. And so I think, as Christians, what we can take away from this is that there are real problems with this idea that we might have a right to be happy And instead, we need to sort of be countercultural in our approach to happiness. We need to think of happiness, first of all, in Christian terms. We need to think of happiness in light of eternity. We need to think of happiness as a robust sort of flourishing that's grounded not just in satisfaction of the desires of our heart, but also in a delight, a a delighting in God, which I think actually is one of the deepest desires of our heart, right, is, is to be with God and to sort of see his beauty, right, to look on his glory, right? And so we need to be countercultural in the way that we see happiness differently than the rest of the culture. It's not just a sort of satisfaction of whatever desires you happen to have or passions you happen to have at the moment, but we also need to be thinking um, that we don't have a right to happiness, God gives us happiness. He wants to give us happiness, but that's a gracious, good gift of God. It's not something that he owes us. What he owes us is punishment for our sin. That's what he owes us. But he loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us so that we might have abundant life in Christ, so that we might be reconciled with our creator, so that we might be able to live forever in for an eternity in the presence of our eternal Father. 
heaven. That's, that's how much he loves us. He wants to give us that deep, robust human happiness and flourishing, that blessedness, as a gift, not because we deserve it, not because anybody owes it to us, not because we have a right to it, but just because he loves us. <laughs> All right, so I want to turn it over uh, to you now in the time that we have remaining um, to talk to uh, uh, folks beside you, and, uh, and then, we'll, and then we'll, get some, we'll get some feedback from you. The first thing I want uh, you to t- talk about is why do so many people in our culture think there is a right to happiness? We've already sort of talked about that a little bit. Um, and do you think the church has done anything to encourage belief in a right to happiness? And then lastly, uh, have you ever heard anyone cite a right to be happy as a justification for some action or decision? And if so, what was it? Right? Do you, what, do, what, what do people in our culture cite this right to be happy as a justification for? So um, talk for just a couple of minutes amongst yourselves, and then we'll bring it back together and see, uh, see, what, you, see what you think.
All right, so I'd love to let you keep talking, but I, I want to hear from you. Selfishly, I want to hear from you before we're done. So, um, so, so if anybody would um, share, just uh, first, maybe we should start at the bottom. Are there, are there things, are there things that uh, people in society decide a right to be happiness has a justification for? Anybody think of examples? Affairs. Yeah, this is a big one. This is actually the one, so in the essay that I read from C.S. Lewis, that's what he's talking about. He's not, well, he's talking about affairs, but he's also talking about um, something closely related. Anybody think what that is? We think, yeah, you've got a right to be happy. So if you're with somebody, if you're, you know, in a, in a, in a romantic relationship with somebody, if you're married, um, and that person's not making you happy, well, you have a right to get out, to do what it takes to make yourself happy. Right. Anything else? Everything, yeah, so marketing, commercials, everything sold on desire. Yeah, yeah, pay attention to commercials. Lots, sometimes commercials even go so far as to almost tell you in so many words that you have a right to happiness, right? You deserve it, right? This is, that's why you should buy our product, because you, de- you deserve a break, yeah. Yeah. I think, there's a, I think there's a makeup line that's used something like that. You deserve it uh, uh, line in there. Yeah, I well, know. Yeah. We are getting better at, yeah, making sure that we have more time for pleasure and fun. That's right. That's the goal, right? That is the goal. Yes? Yeah, that's right. So this is a good point about, again, the, the fact that your view of happiness is not worldview neutral, right? If you think that this life is all there is, well, then maybe we should just eat and drink and be merry and right? try to collect as many toys as we can or retire as early as we can and spend as much time on our yacht as we can, right? Yeah, so the, you mentioned the, uh, the culture of tolerance uh, facilitates this and encourages this, and, um, and the transgender issue, right? It's a big deal right now. Right? People focusing on this. I mean, I, I, this, this is an issue where the right to happiness comes up all over the place, right? Why, why should we not tell somebody, well, if you feel that way, maybe that's not good for you, right? It's, well, because if it's going to make them happy, well, then who are you to stop them, right? It's actually really interesting that this really doesn't pop up in very many other places outside of sexual morality. People think, well, if you think you have a right to be happy and that means that you, know, you, sh- you ought to be able to rob a bank or steal clothes from the department store, we think, oh, no, that's terrible, right? If you're harming somebody else, maybe. That's usually what we cite. We say you're harming somebody else, right? Um, but we think... Um, 
you know, if you're married to somebody and you want to have an affair, well, maybe, maybe you do have a right. Yeah, who are we to stop you from being happy? Yeah, that's too bad. Any other thoughts? Say it again. I didn't. Being dishonest. Oh yeah. So as a justification for maybe um, uh, uh, for maybe cheating uh, or being dishonest in other ways, say, hey, well, end of the day, I have a right to be happy. Somebody's taking that away from me. Well, I should still pursue my happiness. I have a right to it, after all. Yeah. So, I used to be an atheist and a nihilist. And while, you know, most people won't admit it, their worldview contains a lot that, you know, comes from this sort of worldview that nothing happens when you die, so why not just live and be happy? Yeah. So I feel like, you know, that sort of pervades our culture, whether we explicitly use that term, term or not. Yeah. Yeah, good. So uh, the suggestion was, that, again, that the worldview matters here, right? Um, if you think this life is all there is and that you'll live about 70 years, 80 years, if you're fortunate, and um, that's it. Then you just go into the ground and your body becomes dust and fertilizes the, you know, the plants and things. And that's, if that's all there is to it, then, yeah, why, why think that we should ever stop ourselves from uh, pursuing what we just happen to be passionate about. Right? Um, I think if this, uh, if this le- lesson has sort of uh, pointed you in the direction of anything, it's that idea and the idea that um, there does seem to be a deeper and more robust sense of happiness that even the ancient Greeks uh, who weren't Christians recognized, right? That there's this deeper sense um, in which we can flourish as a human being, right? Be a truly good human being, um, and uh, what, what Christianity adds to that story is, yeah, and you can't do it by yourself. You need God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we have to rely on God. We have to rely on Jesus, our Savior to draw us into that happiness. But when we do, when we let him transform the desires of our hearts so that we actually desire what's truly good for us and we actually take delight in what's truly good and true and beautiful, that is the essence of a good life. That's the picture of a good life. But sometimes the road to get there is painful. It means having to resist you know, passions that we have, desires that we have, crucify our sinful natures, right? Yes. Yeah, Travis. So, yeah. I, mean, I believe that calls into question the uh, uh, morality as, as a whole um, and, and the underlying belief. I was mentioning this to the earlier during the discussion, discussion moment. Um, is there an objective morality that transcends Christianity and 
Yeah. Yeah, the natural law, right? The natural moral law that there, yeah. And Lewis calls it the Tao and the abolition of man, right? And, and in mere Christianity, um, the idea that look, there there are some moral truths that we can know without having to go to scripture. We can know just by looking around at the world and using our reason, using our God-given abilities, our moral sensibilities. We can just see that murder is wrong, rape is wrong. We can just see um, uh, that, that honesty is a good thing and uh, that laying down one life, one's life for one's friend is, is a good thing. It's a noble act, right? It's admirable. Um, so we can see all of these things. And, and so um, one way to put this in, in theological terms is that this is, all, uh, this is all from general revelation, right? The idea that there's some things that we can know that are revealed to us just through creation, just through reason, right? We can know uh, certain things. And I, th- I think the emotions play an important role in our knowing uh, these moral truths. Um, but then there's other things that we can't know just through general revelation. We've got to have special revelation for it. So we've got to have scripture. We've got to have uh, Jesus. Um, we've got to have the Holy Spirit that reveals special spiritual truths to us, right? Um, about Jesus being Lord and Jesus being one with the Father, right? Um, and so, so there's, there's a sense in which you can get some of this just through general relation, and so maybe that's part of the ar- argument, right, here, is that, is that, yeah, maybe the atheist can live a quote-unquote good life to an extent, <laughs> to, to the extent that any of us can, but look, we're all bad at this. None of us are good. <laughs> we're all sinful. Um, we all screw up every day multiple times a day. <laughs> and so if anybody thinks that they've somehow achieved moral perfection without Jesus as their Lord, well, they're mistaken. If anybody thinks they have achieved moral perfection on their own, even as a Christian, <laughs> they're mistaken, right? The only way we can achieve moral perfection is by having Jesus' perfection just uh, given to us, right? Um, be, be washed in his blood, That's right. Yeah. That's right. But as a Christian, we have a Lord who is God, who humbled himself so much that he came down to earth and let himself be put on a cross and killed for our sake. And so we ought to be the last people to be demanding our rights (laughs) because he didn't demand his own. All right, um, let me close with a word of prayer, and then I'd be happy to stick around and talk with any of you who want to talk more about any of these, any of these topics. God, we love you, and we thank you so much for teaching us how to love, how to love each other and how to love you by loving us first. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you that you want us to be happy, that you want us to be uh, fulfilled, that you want us to flourish, that you want us to live um, a good human life that you created us for. And and we are sorry for our sins, for the ways that we deny you, for the ways that we uh, deny your law and disobey your law and put ourselves at enmity with you. And we thank you so much for sending Jesus to be our Savior that we might be brought back to peace with you, that we might be able to live forever with you in heaven. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you very much.
Hope to see you next week.